1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast series of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Truel, your host. And today, I will be talking to Professor Brad Carr about his latest book, Freud's Pandemics, Surviving Global War, Spanish Flu, and the Nazis which was published by Carnac in 2021. And I believe it's the first volume in a new series by Carnac, the Freud Museum London series. And I believe we'll get to that a little later. Let me start off by introducing Professor Brett Carr. He's a senior fellow at the Tavistock Institute of Medical Psychology in London and visiting professor of psychoanalysis and mental health at Regents University London. He has worked at Freud Museum London in a variety of capacities since its very foundation in 1986, and he's now the honorary director of research at the museum. Professor Carr is the author of 16 books and series editor of more than 75 additional titles on a range of topics, including the history of psychoanalysis, couple and family psychoanalysis, and forensic psychoanalysis. Brett, you've been on the program twice before, we just talked about that. And uh, it's a great pleasure to have you back with us once more. Welcome to the program.
0: Thank you so much, Sebastian. And it's always a great privilege to be interviewed by someone of your intelligence. And uh, I always enjoy our conversations greatly.
1: Great. Thanks very much, Brett. Um, I was wondering, people might be saying, you know, Oh, this is another book about, about Freud, about uh, Freud's life, uh, Freud's biography. Um, and the title seems to suggest that you're connecting it to our pandemic times. Mm. So what exactly made you want to write about Freud once more? Because you've done so quite often already, but now apparently you felt the urge to write about him again. So what, what brought this book about?
0: Well, thank you for asking that that very astute question. I certainly had never intended to write a book entitled Freud's Pandemics. I've written about Freud before and I'm in the middle of writing some other projects about Freud, but I'd never really conceptualized his life in relation to pandemics. But when in late 2019, early 2020 here in the United Kingdom, this dreadful coronavirus uh, exploded. Uh, suddenly, as you know, our world changed dramatically. And one day, I received a telephone call from my colleagues at the Freud Museum London, which, as you know, has been, this was Freud's home after he escaped from the Nazis in 1938. And he lived in that house, 20 Maresfield Gardens, until his death in 1939, and then it became the home of Anna Freud until her death in 1982, and then after both Sigmund Freud and Anna Freud had passed away, uh, that house in Naresfield Gardens in northwest London became the Freud Museum, and the museum has been open non-stop since 1986. But when the coronavirus burst upon us, Sebastian in early 2020, sadly, the museum had to close its doors for Mm -hmm. the very first time. We couldn't allow any visitors to come in. Uh, The staff, the wonderful staff team were all put on furlough and uh, had to work from home. It was really very painful. So the, the staff asked me, would I do a Zoom lecture to help raise funds for the museum? And uh, being an old-fashioned kind of guy and not a real expert on technology, I had never, ever heard of Zoom. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I learned, uh, I learned as we all have come to learn. So I delivered my very, very first Zoom lecture on behalf of the museum. And I'm delighted that we, we were able to raise some money as a result and help pay the bills and, and, and keep the staff team on board, which was really our our most essential task. And when the director of events, uh, a lovely woman called Lily Spain, said, well, what would you like to talk about, Brett? I said, well, my goodness, there's only one topic that we could Uh possibly talk about, which is what might Freud have had to say about pandemics? And I then suddenly began to reconceptualize Everything that I've researched and everything that so many of us have known about his, his life, his biography, in pandemic terms. Right. And I came to appreciate that while we're all living through a coronavirus pandemic, Sigmund Freud, across his 83-year lifetime, had actually lived through not one, but six separate pandemics ranging from anti-Semitism, professional shaming, the horrors of the First World War, to the so-called Spanish flu, his cancer, and then the arrival of the Nazis in Austria. And each of these was the equivalent of a COVID-19 in its own right. Mm -hmm. Each of these pandemics was so incredibly devastating and Freud could readily have lost his life in any one of those six pandemics. So I thought, okay, here we are going through one pandemic and this man, Sigmund Freud, has already survived six. Mm -hmm. Let's reframe his biography in pandemic terms, try to understand how he survived, what resiliency and robustness he drew upon and what lessons we can learn from Freud, not only as a person, but also as an advisor to government and to health authorities, because, as you know, Freud took a great interest in politics, a great interest in global health care in its time, and he would have had quite a lot to say to Anthony Fauci and other world health authorities.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Brett, before we get into the, the content of the book, what I found utterly fascinating is how well and how meticulously researched the volume is. You have uncovered so many little stories, uh, communications, um, personal musings that Freud wrote down, wrote to others. How is this possible in the middle of a pandemic? I believe a lot of this material must only be accessible probably in the in the Library of Congress or places like that. So how how did you manage to research it like that?
0: Well, that's a very, very good question to ask. I, I think one of the one of the great uh, challenges to many uh, historian researchers uh, during this period is that you know none of us could spend time in our favorite libraries, mm-hmm. as, as we as we always love doing. I'm in the very fortunate position, Sebastian, in that I've been studying Freud's life and work since I was, uh, you know, a, a youngster, really, uh, well over 40 years of, of of researching. So I've had the privilege over my lifetime uh, to visit the Sigmund Freud archives at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. on many, many occasions, and uh, much of the collection has now gone online. but but I, I was there back in the old days in person and took copious notes in my obsessional right. way. And I've spent many years researching in the archives at the Freud Museum in London and, and also in the in the museum in, in Vienna. And I, I guess I'm probably one of the last people alive who had the privilege of meeting some of the last people to know Freud, you know, mm-hmm. when I was a mm-hmm. young trainee. I had many enjoyable conversations with somebody like Dr. Josefina Strauss, who was one of Anna Freud's uh, pediatric colleagues in Vienna in the 1930s. And when Freud's regular physician, uh, Dr. Max Schur, uh, could not accompany Freud on the train on the Orient Express from Vienna to Paris to London, uh, Anna Freud uh, engaged this woman, uh, Dr. Strass. Uh, to literally help transport her father who was then very frail help lift him onto the train and get him safely uh, out of austria and into the united kingdom
1: mm-hmm. and
0: she told me many many stories so so back in the 1980s i did interview quite a lot of the last remaining survivors who knew freud personally. And, and so I've, I've really incorporated a lot of lifetime uh, archival research and oral history research. And of course, the good news about researching Freud is that, you know, I don't know another figure in world history with the possible exception of Jesus who has been more written about than uh-huh. Freud. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think even if one didn't get to go to the Library of Congress or meet somebody like uh, Dr. Strauss back in the 1980s, I, I think there's still so much data that is widely available. Uh-huh. And I found Freud's life utterly, utterly riveting. I, you know, The more I read about him, the more I learn about him as a human being, the the more... Uh, I, I fall in love with his work because mm-hmm. I think you, you get to really appreciate how his work grew psychobiographically out of his own history. Mm-hmm. And I think to the extent that I've made any contribution to psychoanalytical theory or to clinical practice, I think it has been my immersion in Freud biographical studies that has made me that much more passionate about this man as a, as a true genius.
1: Mm <laughs> hmm. Thanks for that. And I think it's it's worth pointing out at, at this stage that it's uh, the book is very rich in, in primary source material, right? I mean, obviously, you, you say that, you know, he's been uh, a lot has been written about him. But you actually made a real effort in this book to use mostly primary source um, material, which I think is, is much to the merit of the book. And there are so many stories in it that i haven't read uh, anywhere else so so it's really worth um also mentioning that to the listening audience there's a lot of material in here that you won't get anywhere else and i would really like to get into you know the the pandemics the sixth pandemics as you as you call them um starting i guess in freud's childhood really right mm-hmm. a, a childhood that was to a certain extent riddled with losses, um, with very difficult living conditions. Um, and I'd like, I'd like to maybe ask you to draw a little bit of a picture of Freud's childhood.
0: Mm. Freud's childhood, as you all appreciate, Sebastian, is a very rich and, and complex uh, several years of his life. And um, I, I think no two historians would conceptualize it in quite the same way. He, he did have, you're right, he did have a lot of struggles and a lot of losses. For example, when he was a, a very small child, um, his, his younger brother died very, very suddenly. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he also had to deal with, you know, the, the challenge of multiple sibling rivalries because in addition to his his young brother who died, uh, Julius Freud, his mother then gave birth to five daughters. So being the eldest child and then having five sisters and then ultimately a new brother, Alexander Freud, uh, come into the picture is it's a lot of what we would know as sibling rivalry and, and mm-hmm. Freud certainly taught us more about sibling rivalry than anybody else. Um, his father was a very very uh, struggling wool trader trading in the wool of sheep which was very very common trade at that time and and uh, his his income dropped significantly over the course of many years and he he struggled to to support his family, but but what I do want to say about Freud's childhood is that though there were losses, though there were illnesses and deaths, there was also a lot of robustness because Uh he was, in my estimation, reasonably securely attached to both his mother, who was a full-time mother, and to his father, who was a very attentive and I think what we know from Freud's reminiscence is a very loving father, not always a very successful father, but a very present father who stimulated his son's interest in reading and writing and in in uh, the Hebrew texts and the, the Old Testament Bible and the Talmud and uh, the, all of that. So I, I think although Freud did have, various childhood pandemics in inverted commas, he also had a lot of robustness. And that we have to underscore because I think if he didn't have what Donald Winnicott might have called a reasonably good enough childhood, Uh he would never have become Sigmund Freud in the first place. He might have been Uh rather a mediocre physician or not a physician at all and certainly wouldn't have become an outstanding position. And I think when Freud wrote in 1917, you'll remember this famous quote from his essay on Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, you know, the man who has been the, the uh, object of love and affection of his mother will often then develop that confidence which allows you to become successful in later life. Mm-hmm. So although I think, like most people, he found his mother challenging and difficult at times, uh, Amalia Freud was also very, very attentive, and she took much pride in being a very present mother, even though she had her hands full with, with lots of children. So I think Freud had what I would call a good enough childhood, but I think the biggest pandemic that he got through in his childhood was not so much the the daily gains and losses of being a member of the Freud family, but the fact that he grew up in a culture of extreme anti-Semitism. You know, born in 1856, in a far corner of the Austrian Empire, you know, Jews were really considered second class. It had only recently been that they were entitled to citizenship, male, male Jews. And Freud became the very, very first member of the entire Clan to be permitted to study at an organization called a university. Right before that, before he became a young medical student in 1873, Jews in the large Austrian Empire—and as you'll know very well—back then the Austrian Empire was enormous. It was it was like the Roman Empire of ancient times. It was most of Europe belonged to the Austrian Empire, and uh, you know the, the the rules there were very, very powerful indeed. and Freud literally became the first one of the first Jews to be given access to a university education. So he grew up knowing that he and his people were hated. Mm-hmm,
1: he grew mm-hmm.
0: up knowing that if laws were to be changed, he could be deported, he could be executed and so forth. So I think he had a great sensitivity to both safety and security of attachment on the one hand and to terror and persecution on the other. And Mm -hmm. one might say Mm -hmm. that to be a mental health professional, to be a psychoanalyst or a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, one has to find a way to navigate not only in our own lives, but in the lives of all our patients, all our analysands, the fact that people come to us with a lot of internal richness and a lot of internal poverty at the same time. And Freud had much deprivation, but he also had much wealth. But he did go through a life where he was really attacked and threatened a lot and it is very much to his credit and i think also to the credit of jakob freud and amalia Nattenson freud his parents uh, that that he had what what i think he would have called a kind of core ego structure
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which which yeah which i think comes out really clear in the book he would have he would have had uh, to have that you know because the pandemic of antisemitism that it, it's sort of like the backdrop of of all the other pandemics, in a mm-hmm. sense, because especially also like his um, what you call the pandemic of collegial hatred mm-hmm. was so connected to him being a Jew, right? The yeah. uh, you have this chapter that's titled "The Fraudulent Jewish Pervert," mm-hmm. where Freud where you describe how how anti-Semitically he was attacked for his discoveries, right, and they were directly linked. To him being Jewish, yeah. and people made made a, a a huge deal of like, you know, this anti-Semitic trope of the Jew who is sort of, um, you know, over sexualized and bringing all these like, you know, perverted topics to a to an uh, otherwise um, quite sanitized public. Right, that's what they ascribe to him. This yeah. projection. So, And that was a very important chapter, I think.
0: You know, when, when I was
1: a young man,
0: here in London, people often thought of the profession of psychoanalysis as a very, very upper-middle-class, elitist, white, old-school profession. You know, take, take somebody like uh, John Bowlby, the famous uh, child psychoanalyst and uh, adult psychoanalyst and the father of attachment theory. You know, he was a very tall, uh, white-skinned, light white-skinned man. His father was a knight of the realm, Sir Anthony Bowlby, who had been the private physician to many of the monarchs of Great Britain. And and Bowlby was not unusual coming from that upper middle class uh, background you know Donald Winnicott's father Sir Frederick Winnicott also received a knighthood and he served two terms as mayor of, of Plymouth in Southwest England. So I think a lot of people thought, oh you know psychoanalysis that's just for rich white people and and rich Christian white people. But when Freud, we must remember that when Freud created psychoanalysis and first coined the term in 1896, the first people to be attracted to his circle were exclusively Jewish. Mm -hmm. One Mm -hmm. of the reasons why your fellow countryman, Carl Gustav Jung from Switzerland, was so so exciting for Freud is that that Mm -hmm. he was both a Gentile and, and a Swiss Gentile rather than an Austrian Jew. And you're quite right. Psychoanalysis in the early days was really readily dismissed as a Viennese Jewish uh, form of fraudulence. And not only was Freud a, a Jewish doctor writing extensively, but he dared to write about sexuality. And people thought that that was perverse and pornographic. I think he would have been criticized whether he was Jewish or whether he was Christian. And he dared to focus on childhood experiences at a time when brain degenerationism overtook the psychiatric and neurological professions. So if you were mad back in the late 18th century, early 19th century, it had nothing to do with your mother or father. It was all because you had a degenerated brain. Mm -hmm. And Freud challenged the narrative enormously by saying, you know what? Mummy and daddy have a rather important role to play in the development of your madness, your psychosis, your neurosis, and your sexual life. And early sexual trauma has a great deal. So Freud was hated on multiple, multiple levels by all the German speaking and English speaking neurologists and psychiatrists of the time for many, many decades. A, because of being Jewish, B, because of questioning the traditional psychiatric, neuropsychiatric model, C, for talking overtly about the importance of childhood, and D, for speaking overtly about the role of sexuality. So he could not have been more hated and less of a white man in people's minds. He really was about as minoritized as a professional could mm-hmm. possibly be. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you read all the grotesque attacks Against Sigmund Freud in in the papers, it was just they were really really atrocious. Uh, a, a piece of the research of which I am you know proud is that I, I, I found so many uh, little throwaway comments in the British Medical Journal throughout the nineteen tens nineteen twenties nineteen thirties, and in the Lancet, which as you know are the two most esteemed medical weeklies in the English language, Uh, certainly were at that time, uh, we'd have to add the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, nowadays, and and, and Nature, and Science, and and, and others, but it is just striking, you know, when when Freud died in 1939, um, a a, a British-based ophthalmologist called Andrew Rugg Gunn, Wrote to Freud that not only was he, a, you know, a pervert who who spent too much time writing about sex, but that Freud and psychoanalysis lie at the heart of Bolshevism uh-huh. and Nazism. He uh-huh. accused Sigmund Freud of of creating, you know, Adolf Hitler's, uh, you know, Nazi Nazi work. It's just it, it just takes your breath away when you when you see what was written about him, and um, uh, also uh, the, the president of the Royal Medico-Psychological Society, who, who was, uh, that was the precursor to what is now the Royal College of Psychiatrists here in the United Kingdom. He referred to psychoanalysis as a fraudulent practice. Uh, people, people loved Playing jokes on Freud's surname. Uh-huh, they called uh-huh. him Professor Fraud rather than Professor Freud. And if you publish that in a medical journal today, there would be lawsuits aplenty. That would never be published in the British Medical Journal today or in the Lancet. But, but you know, presidents of medico psychological societies saying this man is a fraudulent pervert. It's extraordinary. And I think in many ways, although Freud knew that he was hated as a Jew, I think the pandemic of shaming, professional shaming, that was even more painful for him is that if somebody said, oh, you're just a Jew, I hate all you Jews out of the country, he he would have known that he was part of many millions of hated Jews. But they singled him out and said, actually, Freud, we hate you most of all because you are a fraud, you are a pervert, and you're setting back medical science by 50 to 100 years. Mm-hmm. So he was personally shamed in an anti-Semitic way and in an anti-professional way. And how he didn't just commit suicide with all of the attacks that he endured uh, you know, is a very important investigative question because I think a more emotionally frail more emotionally fragile person, would have just killed himself or would have retired or would have had a psychotic breakdown given all the attacks that Freud and his early Jewish colleagues had to endure.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, th- that question, right, what 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 helped him survive, I think is, is sort of at the heart of the book to my mind. And what I was just thinking about as you were talking just then um was this episode that you'll surely remember when Freud is traveling across the Atlantic for, for the first time with, with Carl Gustav Jung and with Shandor Ferency, right. To go to America. And he, he's talking to them saying, you know, these Americans, they don't know that we're bringing the plague. Mm. Mm. And and I think it's a, it's a very interesting quote in relation to what you were just talking about um, Freud's outsider status. Mm-hmm. right that he he had a very clear idea of how provocative he was yeah and and how um, well I guess I guess to a certain extent how disruptive and how radical his theorizing was mm-hmm. So he had no he had no no doubts about um, I guess to a certain extent we could say his own aggressivity, or like, you know, in, in broader terms, his um I guess you say you say penetrativity in the mm. book at, at one stage. Mm. So his I guess his knowing himself, right? His 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 knowledge of himself as a person and of of um I guess how much he's He's putting the public through with his theories, and also in, re- in relation, for example, to his patients, he had no difficulty in writing to colleagues about how hateful he could feel towards other mm-hmm. patients. Mm-hmm. And in the book, you made the point that that's actually something that that made him survive, that helped him mm-hmm. survive his ability to give words to his, you know, most uncomfortable or unwanted experiences. Mm-hmm. I, I think you phrased that extremely
0: well, very, very uh, incisively and very insightfully, Sebastian. And I think, you know, it is interesting, here we are in the year 2022, and you're quoting that comment that Freud made in 1909, they don't know that we're bringing them the plague. We can't help but think about the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I suspect in many ways, a lot of the doctors back in freud's era back in freud's early lifetime would have regarded himself as this mad maskless unvaccinated person who was you know going to large public gatherings and spreading this evil coronavirus when they were staying at home you know minding their own business because I think they, they, they felt that he was spreading a kind of theoretical coronavirus.
1: Right, uh, the coronavirus of sexuality, of exactly. the unconscious. Yeah. yeah the, oh,
0: that's beautifully phrased. The coronavirus of the unconscious. Absolutely. I think that is what, and, and a Jewish virus mm-hmm, as mm-hmm, well. Mm hmm. And then, of course, you know, in addition to the early pandemics of his lifetime of anti-Semitism and professional shaming, you know, he then had to live through the First World War, which was uh, uh, just grotesquely painful for him, you know, all three of his sons went to the front line. Uh, and and his his eldest son Martin Freud was shot at, uh, almost died, uh, uh, missed a bullet by just a, 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 you know a mere half an inch, uh, and then was imprisoned uh, for nine months uh, as a prisoner of war. And his youngest son Ernst Freud was nearly bombed uh, uh-huh. while he was on the, uh, the on the Italian river banks. Uh, he'd just come out of a bunker. Uh, and uh, the uh, the enemies dropped a bomb on the bunker and all of his fellow soldiers were killed immediately. Uh, so Freud nearly lost two of his three sons. He could easily have lost three of his three sons. And I think what was so incredibly painful for Sigmund and his wife Martha Freud is that, you know, back then, uh, young soldiers didn't have mobile phones. They couldn't right. text their mom and dad and say, just to let you know I'm still alive, I'm all right. I mean... Weeks would go by, months would go by where neither Sigmund nor Martha knew whether any of their three sons were still alive. So he had all that trauma to deal with. But I think what a lot of people don't appreciate about Freud's biography is how horrific lifestyle conditions were for those uh, Viennese who were trapped at home and not on the battlefield because Mm -hmm. there was no heating. Freud nearly froze to death. Uh, we know from some unpublished letters that he really struggled at times literally to pick up a pen to write because his, his flat at the Bergasse was so cold. He, his, his fingers were almost frozen. They had to live in coats all day long. And there were very, very few food supplies. There was no bread in Vienna at one point. Uh, so he lost a lot of weight and he was not a young, fit man by, uh-huh. by, by anybody's estimation. And um, he, he had a, an old uh, Austrian cousin called Samuel Freud, who had moved to England and, uh, when he was uh, tiny. And uh, Sam Freud would try to send food parcels uh, to his cousin Sigmund and family in Vienna but it sometimes took 2 or 3 months for these parcels to arrive can you imagine you're waiting <laughs> for you know an Amazon delivery and it takes 3 months to get to you it's 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 awful so it is extraordinary that that the domestic freuds who weren't fighting on the front line uh, did manage to live through the awful deprivation conditions of the war and then just as the war was concluding every single member of sigmund freud's family succumbed to the so-called spanish flu and his middle daughter zofie uh, freud um, uh, she died she died very 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 suddenly right. and you know that's just that's just really 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 uh, uh, it was so so heartbreaking for sigmund and martha and and freud did go on to say that although you know, uh, part of part of preparing for life is preparing for death. But it's much easier for a parent to lose a, a partner or even a parent of one's own. But he said there's nothing worse than to lose one's own child. And here he was with his, his beautiful daughter, Sophie Freud Halberstadt was her full name. She was married. She had two sons of her own. She was pregnant with her third child. And in early 1920, she succumbed to the Spanish flu and she died very, very suddenly. And sadly, she lived in Hamburg, not in Vienna, and neither Sigmund uh, nor Marta could even go to to visit. So it was was really, really painful. And as soon as he recovered from that, he was then diagnosed with his own maxillofacial cancer, which Uh uh, burdened him for 16 years. And he underwent very primitive treatments. You know, you as a physician can... uh, and appreciate how back in the 1920s and 1930s, chemotherapy and radiotherapy, which are viciously painful to many patients today, were so primitive. I mean, Freud's, Freud's uh, skin turned black from the radiotherapy mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. You know, he, mm-hmm. he literally half his face turned black for a period of time because the very primitive treatments burned his skin. And then, you know, as though he'd lived through all of that, Uh, Then, of course, the Anschluss takes place in 1938. Adolf Hitler and his colleagues storm Vienna. And uh, again, you know, Martin Freud is held at gunpoint by several Nazi thugs. Anna Freud is kidnapped and taken to the uh, newly established Gestapo headquarters. And they did not know whether she was going to come back alive. So, So Freud had nothing but pandemics throughout Mm -hmm. his lifetime Mm -hmm. and you know the fact that he could amid all of that invent depth psychology psychoanalysis uh, and promote it expand it publicize it internationalize it is a real tribute to his creativity to his ego strength to his intelligence and possibly to his aggression. You know, what you said earlier, Sebastian, I think is a very interesting, and I, I didn't really expand upon that in the narrative. I wish I had, about whether there was a retaliatory quality in Freud's unconscious mind that he'd felt so traumatized, so attacked, so beaten up by all of these shaming doctors and anti-Semitic people that there was a part of him that just wanted to come up with a new treatment and hmm. shame them by contrast. Hmm. And he did shame his fellow medical colleagues because, as you know, back then, it was very common to perform hysterectomies or mm-hmm. ovariectomies on female neurotic patients, even clitoridectomies. Some patients, male patients, who suffered from what we would now call schizophrenia, then known as dementia precox, they had their testicles removed. They were literally castrated. And Freud shamed the ordinary doctors of the time, saying, you people are brutes. You're sadists. Look what you're doing. All I'm doing is having nice conversations quiet, uh-huh. Uh-huh. non-physical conversations with my patients, taking them seriously, giving them time to talk. So one might say that there was something very retaliatory about Freud saying, look at the loving treatment I'm providing. I uh-huh. hope you are all shamed when you realize how sadistic you are
1: being to your patients. I think that's a, that's a very interesting point. But I, I thought about the fact of his aggressivity also in more, in, in broader terms, even, you know, it, the, the mere fact that he would be willing to be um, in contact with colleagues and friends and show himself also in sort of an unpleasant way at times, mm. right? Where he would let them know about how down he's feeling at times. And there are mm. some remarkable letters quoted in the book where, he, you know, is just writing to colleagues about, how dark his thoughts are, how yeah, yeah. desperate he is at times. And I mean, yeah. you can obviously, um, you know, one can definitely understand that after losing his daughter, after having his, his sons in the war and not knowing um, how they would fare on the battlefield, um, and and just the mere fact that he was willing to, I guess he could say to burden other people with his Worries and his um, very understandable, you know, anxieties was m- very much a sign of health. And we know this from the consulting room, right? People mm-hmm. get in trouble if they don't have a, that, that sort of integrated aggressivity in the broadest sense of trusting that someone will, you know, contain their most unpleasant thoughts or feelings, yeah. and Freud really had that quality.
0: No, you're, you're, you're right to really emphasize that. I mean, Freud was very, very skilled at putting ugly feelings into words. And although one might say that he engaged in many battles with some of his colleagues, you know, his battle against uh, his, some of his early uh, contemporaries like Wilhelm Steckel and Alfred Adler, and then ultimately Carl Gustav Jung, uh, Otto Rank, Chandor Ferenczi, you know, all the people with whom he had uh, uh, ultimately uh, difficult, explosive uh, relationships, which, which, which ended in disappointment. Um, they were battles, they weren't wars. And Freud never assaulted these men physically. He was able to express his disappointment, his discontent, mm-hmm. his disrespect, In language, and just imagine if you know nowadays, as we find ourselves in a time of physical warfare where people are actually dropping bombs on one another, if we could just put those feelings into words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that's a very simplistic and naive way of talking about, you know, utter planetary trauma and, and, and devastation, but, but what we do know about warfare is that it is action rather than thought. And Freud tries to get us to work more towards thought rather than action, verbalizing our death wishes, our todeswunschen, putting those hateful feelings that we carry as human beings into words so that we don't actually deprive other people of their lives. Mhm.
1: Mm-hmm. And he was, yeah, I think he was a really good example of what he was striving for with his patients in the consulting room, right? Mm. Putting putting into words um, the most difficult feelings, I guess, in order to to not act on them. But then, Brett, and that's that's one of the of the Actually, I must say one of the episodes in the book that I enjoyed the most, Freud also comes out in one place as a man of action. And that is uh, the story about when they were vacationing uh, near Bad Reichenhall in Germany and an anti-Semitic mob attacks his sons. Mm. Freud jumps into action, Mm. picks up a stick and attacks the crowd. I thought that was just amazing how, how he knew when, you know, when to act. When there's mm. like, when there's no, you know, it doesn't make sense to argue with an anti-Semitic mob. Sometimes you have to jump into action. Mm. I just love that episode.
0: Oh, I'm so glad that you you picked up on that. It's a very, very little-known story about Freud, which was reported by his his eldest son, Martin Freud. And, you know, it would have been very easy for Freud, having grown up as a Jew, uh, not to pick up his walking stick Uh because these these, these, uh, Gentile men were making uh, fun, they were making threatening comments to... To, to Martin and, and, and one of his brothers, and they came home and they said to their father, you know, oh, these men are out to get us. And, and Freud was a protective father, and he went running and screaming after these men, and he frightened them away, even though he was, you know, an older, uh, relatively small Jewish man. Freud was not, you know, six foot seven. He mm-hmm. was a, mm-hmm. a very modest height and, and very modest build. Uh, so he could easily have just said to his sons, look, let's just, let's just stay at home and, 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 and uh, avoid those horrible people. Uh, you're right, Freud did have the capacity to turn to action when he needed to do so. And we would not have a psychoanalytical profession if Freud had not taken great action in mm-hmm. terms of recruiting colleagues, seducing colleagues, you know, he, uh-huh. Uh-huh. he would not have, if he hadn't maintained a long and very intimate relationship with the French princess Marie Bonaparte, he would not have got out of Austria at all because having cultivated active relationships with people like, like uh, uh, the princess Bonaparte who had uh, incomparable wealth and, and literally bribed the Nazis and helped him to escape. Uh, then then he would he would not have left Austria. He uh-huh, and his family uh-huh. would have been sent ultimately to concentration camps, as happened tragically to four of his five sisters.
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Brett I I'd, I'd like to come back to to the story of Freud's carcinoma mm. because I think to me reading the book that was probably the part that struck me the most emotionally. Because it, it sort of, I was able to make the connection, I guess, for the first time between, you know, random dates. I knew, I you know, I had these facts. But then reading your account of Freud's year-long struggle with his physical health and his suffering, um it it was very gripping mm-hmm. and and i i guess i wasn't aware emotionally of how long that struggle went on mm-hmm. how long he had been suffering extremely like from his 60s right yeah, yeah. for 16 years yeah. he'd been struggling with carcinoma yeah and that's that's a very long period also a very long period in which he was still Writing, publishing, you know, um, to a certain extent, still running the psychoanalytic movement. So thats I, th- I think we tend to forget that, yeah. or at least I did.
0: Well, that's very sensitive of you to, to comment on that, because he really did go through uh, a physically excruciating chapter of his, his life, his last chapter of life. He died in intensive pain from, from his cancer. Um, very briefly, for those who are not familiar with his, uh, his oncology history, uh, he was diagnosed in the springtime of 1923, uh, shortly before his 67th birthday. And, of course, we, we now know that you know, because he had smoked uh, approximately 20 cigars every day of his adult life, decades and decades. It's it's not a surprise that he developed a maxillofacial cancer and had all kinds of lesions on the inside of his, his mouth. And then between 1923 and his death in 1939, over those 16 years, he had innumerable surgical procedures, probably over 30 surgical operations. And he had so many Specialist medical consultations in one year, he saw the same doctor 70 times, Seven mm-hmm. zero. I mean, that's, that's really almost like living an inpatient life. Mm-hmm. He, he mm-hmm. almost died from some of these very, very brutal early chemotherapy treatments, radiotherapy treatments, as we mentioned, um, surgical eviscerations. He ultimately had most of his jaw removed and replaced with a very, very primitive prosthesis. Uh, Believe it or not, at the Freud Museum in London, we still have uh, in the archives uh, one of the prostheses that Freud had to put in his mouth. And one of the real difficulties that he had is that here was this exceptionally verbally accomplished, fluid person, a brilliant lecturer, Freud always, delivered wonderful lectures to his medical students at the university with no notes. He, uh-huh. he was a great storyteller, as you know, and he could captivate people. And then suddenly this great spokesperson could not speak. They called him the wah-wah man, because at uh-huh. one point it was so painful for him to move his mouth with this wooden prosthesis inserted into it. The only sounds he could make were wah-wah. So they called him the Wawa Man, mm-hmm. and to lose one's speaking voice when that is the whole nature, when you are the father of the talking cure, that must have been an absolutely dreadful, dreadful uh, trauma for Freud. And he struggled to eat. He was in constant pain. Several of his colleagues in their memoirs remember how, how they would see Freud you know, pressing his skin on his face, with mm-hmm. his fingers, just to try to alleviate all the nerve pain that he was experiencing. So he really, really struggled. And then at the very end of his life, as his body really started to decay, he emitted such a horrible fetid odor that his beloved dog, who just uh, you know used to attach himself to Freud's body, uh, Freud's closest late-in-life lover, was his his uh, his his wonderful chow dog uh, okay. the dog just found the smell coming off of freud's uh, decaying necrotic body so disgusting that that the dog just wouldn't stay in the room with freud anymore so so he knew that he was dying at that point in september of 1939 and that was a pandemic of of its own kind
1: it's really interesting in the book how um you know, his Leibarzt, his personal physician, Felix Deutsch, Mm. um, tells the story of how, how he was, how he spent the whole night awake before Mm. he was able to tell his wife, Helene Deutsch, who was also uh, um, one of the early adherents of of psychoanalysis um, about how severely ill Freud is. And, and I thought that was very remarkable how Freud the man was so important as, as sort of like this father figure mm. to, to the, the early psychoanalysts. And, and I don't think it's just the early psychoanalysts because I had <laughs> it, it, it's a bit embarrassing to tell this story. But when I was reading the book uh, and when I was reading the part of Freud's carcinoma, I had I had a very odd experience. I I started to develop an inflammation of the gum. And oh. at first I I wasn't aware I, I could not make the connection between you know what I was experiencing and what I was reading. And it was only like after a couple of days I was like, maybe this is a very strong identification with, oh. with what's going on with Freud. And I think, I guess I can only tell this story because I think I wouldn't be alone in this. I think mm. for a lot of people um, in psychoanalytic training, uh, uh, psychotherapists in formation, I guess Freud is still a, a pretty looming and huge figure of identification for mm. us. Mm. So that was a very, very physical experience I had. Very wow. interesting. Yeah,
0: that's a very, very touching story. Thank you for sharing it with us, Sebastian. You know, I think, I, I think he is a father figure and a mother figure too. He mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. he is the parent. Uh, you and I would not have a profession. We would not have the professional lives, or perhaps the personal lives that we have, had it not been for this man, Sigmund Freud. And it breaks my heart when I see so many you know, of the younger generation of our colleagues who boast that they never read Freud. They think, oh, well, you know, he's kind of outdated, isn't he? And, you know, he believed in penis envy, and uh, he thought that women just wanted to be men. Uh, you know, some people even accuse Freud of being a racist because he talked about the primitive parts of the mind. And that I have to say is not my understanding of Freud nor my experience of Freud. This is a perhaps a very different conversation but I think you're right to many of us he is he is the the, the, the father, the mother you know he is a god of, of, of death psychology. We would not have our profession were it not for him. And even though uh-huh. generations uh-huh. of brilliant people have come since Freud, whether it's, you know, Anna Freud, uh, you know, Donald Winnicott, Melanie Klein, Wilfred Bion, you know, pick pick, pick your person, Carl Gustav Jung, uh, all, all geniuses in their own right, uh, none of those people would have done any of the work that they did do had it not been for the base that Freud mm-hmm, provided. Yeah. And I, I think that you know, if somebody who is new to the psychological world is listening to this and has been told uh, that Freud's a bit old hat, a bit out of date, please review that, that hypothesis and, and go back to Freud, because I'm very happy to say that although I had the great privilege to study with some brilliant teachers and supervisors uh, during my training and I try to read as much of the literature as I can. I would go so far as to say that 99% of everything that I do in the consulting room with patients comes from the original work of Sigmund Freud. 99% is pure classical Freudianism, facilitating a quiet, honest, direct, insightful, unconsciously driven conversation. So to me, Freud is the most modern, most up to date mental health theoretician and practitioner upon whom
1: we can draw. But I think you're quite right about that. Uh, and, and also about Freud's paternal, maternal and, and almost godlike status to to many of us. But I think at the same time, what makes this book so important and so beautiful is also its humanizing aspect, um, humanizing Freud, the man, right? And I think mm. uh, coming back to the question, what what did uh, help Freud to get through these six pandemics, as you as you call them? Um, I was struck by the fact of Freud's neurotic symptoms, right? <laughs> his 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 um, heavy smoking, his his very heavy addiction to cigars for one thing, mm, mm. but also, and and this is just an aside that you're mentioning in the book, the this nervous twitch he had until very late life, right? The licking of his ring. Mm. Mm. I thought that was very interesting. I'd never heard about <laughs> that, and one one could wonder about, you know, the the unconscious uh, unconscious <laughs> meaning of of this of the symptom. But I think what's important here to say is maybe his neurotic symptoms also helped him get through this. Like he mm-hmm. wasn't he mm-hmm. wasn't above any of the you know the daily struggles that we all have, and like all of us, he had neurotic symptoms.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. Freud was a human being with his vulnerabilities, and, you know, when you chose those two examples of his own neurotic symptoms, one smoking cigars, the other licking his his ring on his finger, those both involved the mouth and the tongue. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. I suspect uh-huh. Freud himself, uh, you know, if he were listening to this conversation, might say, well, yes, those were uh, indications of my own early oral deprivation. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh-huh. having to uh-huh. share his mother's breast as a child with uh, five sisters and uh, at various points two brothers, uh, he needed other things to put into his mouth, other objects to lick and suck upon. So, so uh-huh. he did have his, his sibling rivalry uh, in, in, in that regard. And it may be, you're, you're quite right, that, that that might have helped him uh, to, to cope in some ways. But he also drew upon more healthy forms of support. Uh-huh. I talk a lot in the book, as you know, about the impact of Freud and not just the talking cure, but what we might call the writing cure. Because when Freud couldn't speak, because of the surgeries done on his mouth and his jaw, he could still write, he could always write. And that was his way of curing himself, getting through the pandemic, taking ownership of his intelligence, his creativity, his wish to craft a legacy and you know those people some people find writing a really ghastly activity so many of my colleagues loathe writing but mm-hmm. as somebody who's been a, a writer for a long time uh, i am madly in love with the art of writing i find it a very relaxing and enhancing activity and and i think you know it it's certainly writing this book although it was very painful at times to review again and again and again all the ugliness of freud's private life and his professional life i think it certainly helped me the writing and researching helped me through this ugly pandemic when we had so many uh, friends and colleagues uh, becoming extremely ill and even colleagues dying from the coronavirus uh, mm-hmm.
1: uh, which was mm-hmm. just
0: just very very heartbreaking Indeed. So I think being able not only to talk, but write is a very, very important cathartic activity and a way to help integrate uh, the best of our ego structures. And Freud is a very good ru- model as, as a writer because he wrote so, so beautifully, as you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you grew up with uh, reading Freud in, in your native language of German. And Oh, yeah. I you know that's another conversation about is the German Freud the same as the English Freud and again mm. no no two people have the same take on that uh, but um but uh, he was a beautiful beautiful storyteller a great uh, a great narrationist he he really knew how to how to grip people and I think he can still still grip us to this very day but 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 you know, not only did he draw upon his own neurotic forms of support like smoking, and uh, but, but healthier things as well, like, like the writing, like uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. forming warm attachments to his dogs. You know, uh, we, we know that pets can be very, very loving. You know, we now have, I don't know if this is talked about in Switzerland, but here in the United Kingdom, you know, people are publishing articles on what is now called pet therapy
1: mm-hmm. where
0: very lonely isolated depressed and anxious people can benefit from you know having lots and lots of time with a cat or a dog so freud freud certainly was a pioneer of pet therapy because he loved his canine friends but but i think something that's often underappreciated is how lucky freud was to have married his wife, uh, Martha Bernays, uh-huh. because uh-huh. she was the most attentive, securely attached, loving person in the world. The, the narrative about her was that she was not really very intellectual, she wasn't really very interested in his work, uh, and it was really his sister-in-law, Minna Bernays, who was uh, uh, the, the more intelligent one, and some colleagues uh, uh, are convinced that Freud had an affair with his sister-in-law Minna and so forth but the more i have studied uh, the correspondence of martha freud the more interviews i had done with people who knew martha freud directly this woman was just remarkable i think had she been alive today in this post-feminist, new feminist era, I think she could easily have been the chief executive of a major corporation or, you know, she could have been a a world leader. She was so intelligent and so accomplished. But back then she was a full-time housefrau, a housewife. But oh my God, she did it so beautifully. She looked after the house meticulously. She made sure that her husband and her children were looked after meticulously. Uh, psychoanalysis would not exist had it not been for Martha uh-huh. Freud, because uh-huh. she did all of the daily work that that uh, other people would have had to do to look after the children, to do the dishes, to you know, to wash their clothes. Martha Freud did all the housework with several servants, but she was very explicit. She said, "I am doing this so that my husband can do." His important work. She mm-hmm. really prioritized Sigmund. Now many people might say, well, that's that's a marginalization of women. But back then you would have been considered a very bad wife if you didn't look after the family as your first priority. And I, I think Freud maintained a very profound love for her and a very profound secure attachment with her. And I don't think he would have achieved. What he had achieved had Martha Freud not made the household, the home at the Belgasse, such a well-managed, well-catered-for home. I really mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. great admiration for her loyalty and her security of
1: attachments. Mm-hmm. Brett, we're, we're already over the one-hour mark, but there's just one more question I simply have to ask, if you will allow me. Um, Please. You know, I was wondering, as I was reading the book, um, psychoanalysis, and I guess Freud himself as well, have always had a sort of ambivalent relationship to the concept of trauma, right? It's always been, a, I guess, a very relative term, a relative category in psychoanalytic theorizing uh, in the sense that trauma for psychoanalysis is that which, like the event that exceeds the psyche's mechanisms of defense or of Mm -hmm. containment in Mm -hmm. in later terms. So I was wondering if if Freud were to read this, I guess, traumatologically oriented biography that Mm -hmm. you've written, would would he think about his life in terms of of trauma? Do you think he would, would talk about the events that you portray as Traumatizing events.
0: Mm. Oh, what a what a wonderful question! I have no idea how Freud might respond mm. <laughs> to seeing his life studied in such, you know, detail. It, it's, it's very striking. You'll, you'll be very familiar with uh, with the great uh, psychoanalytical historian uh, based in Austria, Ernst Falzeder, who's mm-hmm. done. You know, remarkable, remarkable uh, archival work and uh, edited so many great books of Freud's letters in English and in German and has written uh, original books of his own. Um, Ernst Falzeter once once wrote in a lovely article about Freud, he said, you know, s- uh, talking about the fact that there's a lot of nice stuff that we know about Freud and a lot of uh, some nasty, angry stuff about Freud, And Ernst wrote in this paper, he said, anybody whose life has been studied with such meticulousness as Freud's life has been studied, uh, you know, good things will come out, bad things will come out. You know, I don't know anybody whose life has been investigated in so Mm -hmm. much detail, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. by by all my biographical predecessors and no doubt by all those who, who might follow. So we've really, really taken a big microscope to, to Freud's biography. So everything has come out, all the good things, all the troubling things, and, and, and so forth. And whether Freud would have framed those events as traumas, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to think that, that he would be sympathetic to the approach, because I do believe that first and foremost, Freud was a theorist of trauma. Mm -hmm. I know that there was a narrative that came out in the wake of the work of Jeffrey Mason and Alice Miller in the 1980s that suggested that that Freud had abandoned trauma for the Oedipus complex, but but I don't think that's quite accurate, and we need a longer conversation Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. really go into the detail. I think what always lies at the heart of what Freud talks about is those early, ugly, childhood, infantile and childhood experiences. And as Freud wrote, even as late as 1937, just before his death, he said, we must realize that there is always a kernel of truth in everything that we do, even in psychotic delusions. Right. You know, there's always something ugly and real, a kernel of truth that has happened that has caused this. So I, I think of Freud really as the father of modern trauma theory. You know, mm-hmm. others like Pierre mm-hmm. made important contributions and so on, and there are sibling rivals um, among those different groups. But to, to me, Freud is first and foremost a traumatologist of the mind. So I'd like to think that although this really looks at all the ugly cumulative traumata of his life i'd like to think that that he would
1: recognize it in that framework Mm, thanks very much for that brad um we have to bring this to a close we're almost uh we're stretching the frame here um (laughs) but but i'd like i'd like to give you a moment to talk about the series that this book um has started, right? It's the Freud Museum London series, and this is the first volume in it, um, as far as I know. Could you tell us where where you're taking the series, what you hope to accomplish with it?
0: Well, well, thank you for asking about that, yes. And as you know, the the long-standing psychoanalytical publishing house, Karnak Books, uh, got sold to the uh, publishing team at Routledge, Uh, back in 2017 and then in 2020 uh, my colleague Dr. Stephen Setterberg uh, relaunched Karnak Books as a new entity entirely and I'm very pleased that uh, Stephen is a Jungian analyst and a child psychiatrist but he's also a great fan of Sigmund Freud and we reached out to the Freud Museum London and spoke to the director there, Carol Siegel, who's been a great colleague over the years. And we talked about the possibility of really helping to advance Freud's legacy by crafting a new book series, which would look at Freud's work, Freud's life, uh, Freud's followers, and so forth. So this book is the launch title in a new monograph series called the Freud Museum London Series, uh, sponsored jointly by the New Karnak Books and by Freud Museum London. So I'm hoping that if there are others who share uh, our passion for Sigmund and 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 those who followed in his wake, uh, to please uh, go to the Karnak Books website and and find out more about the series. Because uh, I really believe, as as an historian first and foremost, that that if we can study the past, we'll do much better clinical work with our patients.
1: Well, thanks very much for that. Um, I'm sure we will have, we'll have many books from the series on the podcast in the future. So that's, that's good to know and good to watch out for. So, Brad, we've been going for uh, longer than we should, <laughs> I guess. But it's, it's always very intriguing, very interesting to talk to you. So thank you very much for writing this book. And for talking to me today, the book for the audience, again, is Freud's Pandemics, Surviving Global War, Spanish Flu and the Nazis. And I've been talking to Professor Brett Carr. Brett, thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Sebastian. A real pleasure to talk to you.